from McKinsey's business building practice, Leap, I'm Andrew Roth and welcome to The Venture, a series featuring conversations with legendary venture builders in Asia about how to design, launch, and scale new businesses. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice on how leaders can build successful businesses from scratch. Welcome to another episode of The Venture. For our 17th episode, I'm excited to share a conversation with Samuel Rhee. Chief Investment Officer and Co-Founder of Endowas, a Singapore-based fintech company. Endowas has transformed the city-state's cumbersome social security investment process into a fully digital experience. It is now the only investment platform in Singapore approved for the investment of all funds, an eye-popping trillion-dollar wealth market. You'll hear Samuel tell us about his mission to solve the retirement adequacy problem with financial literacy, expert advice, lower costs, elimination of hidden fees, and a corporate culture that puts the client first. There's a lot to cover. Welcome, Samuel. Great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Looking forward to talking about Endowas. I mean, you've been on, it seems like, a fast journey. In the last few years, you've announced some pretty big new rounds of funding. I think you've raised over $44 million US dollars now for the venture. And before we get into what the Endowas platform is, I'd like to um, talk a little bit about what was the inspiration or, or what was the original problem to solve that inspired you? to start Endowas? The journey of Endowas began in 2017. The idea was really to try to solve the pain point of trying to invest our own money, build wealth, basically because investing in Singapore is so costly and leads to poor outcomes because of many structural problems that exist here. And it's not just a Singapore problem. On the demand side, there's a problem of not enough financial education, not enough financial literacy. So people are not asking for the right products in the right way at the right cost. The incumbent financial institutions just have not been able to provide the service that is required to tackle real-life problems like retirement adequacy, for example, which arguably is the biggest generational challenge we face as a society as well as as an individual. So Endowas was created to really solve that pain point of trying to invest, save, build wealth, and to solve retirement as well for the individual. My background is in institutional investing from Morgan Stanley Investment Management. So I know that GIC or Morgan Stanley does not pay the high fees that an individual pays to the banks to access a mutual fund, unit trust. And I get good advice from institutional investment banks, and I get access to great products that help me succeed. And I just wanted to bring these types of successful formula of institutional investors and make it available to individual investors at the cost that is institutional. And one of the most critical things to solve, for example, the problem of retirement was we needed to, you know, really change behavior and improve the way the CPF pool of money was being used because it's such a big pool of assets for an individual here in Singapore. And maybe just take 30 seconds, Sam, and share what is CPF for an audience not familiar with that part in Singapore. Absolutely. CPF stands for Central Provident Fund, which is the social security system of Singapore. Singaporeans and permanent residents here save about 37% of your income, 20% from the self-saving as a pay-as-you-earn kind of system. And the company also contributes 17% of that. So it's a huge amount of savings. And people, it's a very flexible security system. So you can actually use it to buy a house. You can actually build for retirement. You can actually use it for medical. So it's a holistic system. It's one of the best in the world, and it's very well structured. But I think it was initially designed to increase home ownership in Singapore 
And as a result, Singapore has one of the highest home ownership in the world, 98%. So that's great. But in fact, I think the design has to change now as there's an aging population and the retirement portion of it is just too small. And the housing part is not going to be enough to supplement that. And so you need to really use this more efficiently and build wealth over the long term. And the only way to do that is to make financial investments. And it's the perfect pot of money to do that because you're saving every month. There's a regular savings plan and you're investing for like 20, 30, 40, 50 years oftentimes. So it's a very long term plan and it's locked up. You can't take it out or use it anywhere else. But the system was very inefficient. It was very costly. And I think there were a lot of limitations. It was a completely offline experience. So what Indawas did was to embark on this, to move the CPF investing experience completely online. So it took us more than two years and millions of our own money without any guarantee of success or approval even by the government. And we built a purpose-built tech stack for the CPF investing piece. And it took us two years, but we got that approval at the end of 2019. So we did build it for CPF and we built it for a holistic investment platform. But because of that, we could actually invest your cash savings, your CPF savings, and your SRS savings all seamlessly on a single app. So Endowis is the first and only CPF investment advisor, but it's also the only investment platform where you can use all your source of funds here in Singapore. It sounds like from your days in institutional investing, you saw that there was a lack of advice, access, and sort of the high fees or costs that were available to an institution. These things were available to institutional investors, but not to the consumer. What about customer experience? You have to go fill out forms, wait in lines. What part of the innovation, aside from cracking the integration with CPF, what portion of this was around just solving the digitization of the customer experience? First of all, I'd like to say that it wasn't just me. Obviously, Gregory Van, who's my co-founder, and a few other co-founders were there from the beginning. It was actually one of the other co-founder, Yu Ning, who came up with the CPF idea. But all of us were struggling with trying to invest our money. And I had the desire to solve the retirement problem. And this is really important that we built a team around common values and common purpose. We were able to get going and we had this clear goal in mind with a very strong desire to solve the retirement problem, solve the pain points of CPF investing. But if we did that, we're solving the general investing problem, the general investing malaise. So that was what we were going after. And when you talk about client experience, that's everything really, right? When we're talking about an offline to an online kind of transition for any service company, I mean, it could be Amazon, you could talk about Netflix, you could talk about whole host of offline to online transition. In the end, what it's all about, I think, is the user experience and it's about improving cost, right? Those are the two dramatic transformations that occur when a service moves from an offline to an online experience. And that's the key value proposition of an O2O. Unfortunately, financial services in general, and especially the wealth services, has been so backward. It really is the worst client experience, right? Going to a bank taking a ticket, waiting an hour to go to the counter to buy a single mutual fund. So I think there's been a gradual process of innovation and the move to online or digitization. And we just took that to the next level for all of your money. I think that's the key thing. But I have to say that financial services is not an e-commerce business. It is a regulated business. It's a professional service. 
And so it's different. There's a higher standard to which we need to build the specifications and the tech stack. And as a financially regulated entity, we have compliance and risk and et cetera. So it's a much more complicated solution versus an Amazon retailer or an e-commerce player. And the user experience has to actually be very different because people can make one purchase online. That's okay for a $20 headset, but sending over $100,000 of your life savings to a new brand that you've never heard of, that's very different value proposition. So there's a long sales cycle. You have to build trust. You have to build brand in the right way. So it takes time. But if you do it right, I think definitely the user experience and the cost angle still comes into play. Another confusing term that I've noticed that incumbents struggle with is this definition of product market fit. Anything you could share around that? How you define product market fit? I think it's not easy because it's going to boil down to what you just said, which is people putting their money where their mouth is and actually using the platform to invest their money. That's actually probably the biggest vote of confidence anybody can give, right? Actually entrusting your life savings to a company to work together to build that. So assets, our AU uh, assets under advice, as we call it, is the single biggest important metric. If that's growing, then that's showing us that we are being successful. We're actually resonating with the client base. Robo-advisors target probably the millennials and Gen Zs and the younger generation, first-time investors, starting with $100. That was not our target. And we were very unique in positioning ourselves differently with a $10,000 minimum investment, saying that we're going to try to help solve retirement and your long-term wealth problems. So very differentiated. And we targeted the mass affluent, the white-collar professional kind of market. And I think our demographic numbers, our clients actually give us a lot of information as they onboard. So we were targeting a certain income level, certain amount of savings, age, demographics, certain professionals in particular. So we were successfully acquiring the type of clients we were targeting. But the metric that really helped us to open our eyes to how this was going well and the product market fit was happening was the conversion number, for example, through the funnel. So the top of the funnel for us is somebody coming and leaving their name and and email and registering. And then from there, it's actually a very onerous process to actually finally funding and investing your money. Because a lot of robos and other people take shortcuts, but we actually do everything the proper way. So in order to manage all your money, we go through a lot more processes. And that's where people fall off, we assumed. And a lot of people do, obviously, because some people can't be bothered or they don't have enough time. But what the conversion rate ended up being by the end of 2020, which was our first full year of service, was more than 40% from top of the funnel to finally funding and investing, not even just opening account. Opening account was more than 50%. So that was like a shocking number. It was a tremendously high number for a service like ours. And that's when we realized that we actually have to open up the funnel. And until then, it's interesting, we were bootstrapped. We didn't have a single external investor, no VC money, partly because we knew that we needed to get CPF and we didn't have that guarantee. And we had to prove this product market fit. And when we did that, and after the first year, we grew about 8x from the previous year uh, when we started small. That's when we went out and I said, okay, it's really painful spending our own money to grow and market this. We need some external capital, growth capital correctly to help us grow a bit more faster. Robo-advisors typically target millennials to get them into the habit of investing and 
robo advisors seem to automate the diversification of your investment across different asset classes. Is Endowus doing this as well? Do you have like a technology, like a data stack and analytics that is automating the rebalancing of my portfolio or is it more of a hands-on approach to advice? We actually do, Andrew. Robo-advisory services is a part of what we do, but we just don't like the term because I think it's, I even wrote an article on this, but robo-advisors don't have robo and they don't advise. So it's a misnomer. And I think for clients, when we talk to them and engage them, actually they have the wrong perception of it. They think that there's some kind of a robot that's going to have some kind of a program that's going to beat right, the market. Some secret sauce, some secret algorithm. And that's how a lot of, yes, to beat the market. And that's why we didn't want to be just a very simplistic single product robo like many others started as. We wanted to be a total wealth platform. And we didn't want to just like buy some ETFs, which anyone can do. And that's why a lot of robos, if they take an active approach to managing money, they're no different from any other fund manager. And they normally fail because 70, 80% or these days, 90% of active investors actually underperform. What we are is a total wealth platform. I think we're more, much more like a digital private bank is a way to see it. It's an open platform. It's like an Amazon, Netflix, where we work with 50 plus fund managers to bring the best in class products. So we have algorithms, we have a technology that helps to personalize, to curate and match the right kind of products, the kind of Amazon, Netflix kind of model of curation. We do a lot of due diligence and product screening, which is the advisory piece to help sieve out all the bad type of products. So we only offer you the best in class products. And then we lower cost at every layer. So we introduced this amazing uh, concept, which is 100% trailer fee rebates. Any distributor of financial products, the way they're paid here in Singapore and across Asia, the primary method is not to be paid by the client when they buy something from you. It's actually the client pays the product guy and the product guy gives you a kickback commission to the distributor which is illegal in Europe and some developed markets because you're paying commission for selling financial products, but you're hiding it. So there's no transparency. There's also misalignment because you're always going to try to push the products that are going to give you the highest like fees. Yeah, so it's an conf obvious conflict of interest. In, uh, yeah, Absolutely, yeah. Conflict of interest everywhere. But the biggest thing is people don't know it. And so there is an education piece to this. We just announced that actually we've returned more than $2 million in cash back to clients by returning all of these commissions that most people keep, but we decided to give back to clients so that we can be transparent and completely aligned to the client's best interest. I want to talk a little bit about the complication that's happened in the market in recent months with the, the correction that's happening and what you're observing and what you're hearing from customers, perhaps in terms of access to different types of funds or different types of products. What's top of your mind on this? I'm sure you're getting WhatsApp from friends and customers all, all over the place on what to do. It's tough for everybody, especially when you're invested in financial markets. Every single employee of Endowas is a customer of Endowas too. We built it so that we can use it. And that's why we built it to the standard and the quality that we want to, we would expect and hope for. So when the market falls, obviously we're losing money. And that's painful for everybody, whether you're a client or whether you're an employee. And so I'm in pain as well. And there's also a lot of fallouts these days into the private markets too. I think that private market investors also have suddenly become very cautious. 
We had this during the COVID crisis where everybody panicked and this happened, but then we went back to normal. This time, I feel it's a little bit different because there are many more structural problems that are coming to the surface, whether it's China and structural indebtedness, whether it's you know Ukraine and Russia and the geopolitics, or whether it's the inflation and supply chain problems across the globe. There's nothing we can do about markets. The markets will do what it does. We will have cycles. We will come out of this stronger. And long-term financial markets always tend to move higher with volatility because it is an amalgamation of some of the best companies and the most innovative companies, and they rise to the top and they represent the bigger pieces of the market. So I, I'm hopeful still long-term that we will overcome this. But first of all, for us as a business, as a financial advisor and a wealth company, we are directly impacted by this. Our customers are. We have client advisors. So while we're a digital first, and many, many clients of ours use us for digital-only services, we actually make available WhatsApp, you know, Facebook Messenger, phone, email, and you can book appointments with our client advisors who are the best in the business with the highest ratings and reviews. So we have people who can handhold people through difficulties when they're struggling, when they have negative returns, they don't know what to do next. But at the same time, you have to look at it long term and say, if the markets continue actually trend higher, that's an opportunity for you to continue to invest. So the dollar cost averaging regular savings plan allows you to be disciplined, not be emotional about things and continue to stick to a financial plan. It's really important to have that plan to succeed in the long term. And so we do a lot of content, whether it's webinars, uh, whether it's written content, because we feel that we need to engage the clients a lot, not to make them transact or you know, be fearful so they act upon it, but because we need to give them knowledge so that they can make the best decision for themselves because everybody's different and their personal circumstances are different, their risk levels are different, their investment horizon is different, their age is different. So we need to personalize that uh, in our interactions with clients. When you think about how to get the message out, about Endowas, what is sort of your strategy right now, your split between branding and sort of performance marketing and anything you've learned from the branding side of things or these investments you're making in education and content marketing that's paying off for you on the performance side? Generally, we're fortunate enough to have hired some of the best people in the marketing profession. We've grown the marketing team quite significantly. Just in the last year alone, I think we grew it by 3x. So we really do believe that marketing is critically important, but not marketing to sell products. I think two things. One is that we always say we're a financial service company, but we're also a content company. Content is critically important to us because of the, the role that financial education and financial literacy plays. And even before we launched a single commercial service for over a year, the founders were writing every week in what's now called the Endowance Insights page. And for over a year, we did that and we got a lot of good traction and subscriptions on the newsletter. And SGX even nominated us for an orb award for financial journalism, <laughs> together with like Business Times and, you know, these kind of financial bloggers. And we were like, what was going on? Being treated like a media company. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So I guess we did have some impact and that has continued. We've written a lot of great content to help educate people guide them in personal finance, investing, retirement, CPF, SRS, all these things. We also, when COVID hit, quickly pivoted from live events, which we were holding regularly, like the SGX Auditorium. We pivoted to the webinar on YouTube and Facebook and LinkedIn. 
And that attracted several hundred people at a time with thousands of views very quickly. So we really established that medium very quickly as well and early on. We unfortunately have not done a podcast. It's a crowded space. But I think that, you know, what we've done so far has resonated really well. And that's been a channel because, as I said, the sales cycle is very long and people build trust. They like the content. It resonates with them. It's relevant. Then people come to our website, check out our service and try it out. And then they realize it's a great service. So that's the first thing. Content has been critical for our success. Uh, the second thing is, I think, brand building. I, think, I don't think enough people focus on that, especially in financial services. Building trust and building a brand is so important. It's something that moves in our heart when we hear names like UBS or Morgan Stanley. Immediately, we trust it. So I think we need to build a brand. And Endowis is building a brand around trust, about you know, doing things right, the missional aspect of our business, the mission and vision that we have to solve retirement, to solve individuals and be on their side. All those things, I think, resonate. And I can kind of sense the energy level goes up when you talk about the mission and the vision and solving this big problem around retirement adequacy. Maybe share a little bit about how you're creating a collaborative culture within the team. The mission and the vision of the company is very clear. It's something that we communicate to our clients. It's something that we can communicate internally whenever we hire and bring somebody on early on in the interview process. And that's why for us, I think finding the right fit is really important. There are a lot of people now, now that we're bigger, there's a lot of people who want to join in Dawas, uh, but we want them to join in Dawas for the right reason. And we want them to join because they want to join the mission and the vision of the company that we have created. And the mission is very clear, like help people invest better so they can live easier today and better tomorrow. And that better tomorrow, it involves this critical mission of solving retirement. And we're kind of like very anti-establishment, uh, raging against the machine, kind of, we need to fix this industry. We need to solve the ills. We want to go back to what financial service really means. Finance is not an abstract thing. We're here to serve a customer base and help them achieve better outcomes. If we're aligned to the client and the client succeeds, we succeed. And we are paid only by the client, nobody else, unlike other financial institutions. So we're completely aligned to the client. But aligning our employees to that is critically important for us to get there and succeed as an organization. And that's why I think the fit of any person joining in Dawas is critically important. They may be super qualified. They may be great at their job. But if they're not aligned to the mission of the company, they cannot join in Dawas. That's basically what we think. So it starts from the beginning in the hiring process. I think that everybody, it's not just leaders, because it's, it's not possible for one leader to be the answer to a culture. The culture has to be bought in. The culture has to be every single person living that out in the workspace, in their daily lives. And that's why culture is something that is sustainable and it propagates. But for us, we just want to stay core to our mission. And the opportunity set is huge because it's a trillion dollar wealth market here in Singapore alone. It's a 200 billion going to 500 billion opportunity for CPF alone. And we're the only guys in there. So we're leading the charge and we want more people to join. By the way, are you also starting to look outside Singapore with the latest round? Yeah, absolutely. So we are licensed in Hong Kong now and we're preparing to launch in Hong Kong in the second half. So we're really excited about that expansion. It will be our first overseas expansion. 
The reason we held back was because we wanted to really go deeper and broader and provide more services and solutions for the Singapore market. But just going back to our people, actually, because one of the critical things we did that's very different from any other startup was actually allow our employees, early employees, and even to this day, any employee who wants to buy into the cap table of the company, we actually allowed them in. So we're not one of those fintechs where the founder or the founding team has like the 80% ownership. We're very, very, very spread out. And we allowed everybody to buy in, which means that we are aligned even more so from an economic perspective as well. We've already minted many, many millionaires. Tell me a little bit more about that, because a lot of startups have employee stock option plans, but it sounds like you're doing something different. What we did was when key employees were hired and even junior employees who've just graduated, uh, we offered them a chance in an internal raise. And that helps because we were bootstrapped for four years. So we had complete control on how we built that cap table. And Greg and I intentionally had this design where we said, hey, let's have people have more skin in the game. So we are happy to allow people to put money into the company to grow the company. There were a lot of external investors who approached us early on and a lot of friends and family who wanted to invest in Endow Us. But why should we take their money when our employees are the best people to be owning this company? So we aligned with our employees early on, not just in you know, compensation or mission. We didn't just talk about mission. We gave them a piece of the business. So they own the business. And that's very different. And so that philosophy in this age where technology engineers are churning their jobs and moving every 18 months, we haven't had any turnover in our senior engineering and even our junior engineers. We have really, really low turnover, if any. This is an amazing point, right? Because you started with saying, look, you have to hire for the right culture, right? Hire people that fit into the vision mission, but then also give them access to participate in the the upside of the growth. And there's no better way to engender culture by basically creating a long tail of co-founders for yourself. Yeah, that's right. This is a business that's growing very fast. You have over 120 people now. Anything you could share to someone who's listening, who's going through the same sort of entrepreneurial journey, and we all know it can be frustrating, it can be amazing, it can be lonely. What are you doing to maintain, for lack of a better term, the, your mental health or your energy through the journey? So I have to say, I, I've been in the industry 27 years, although I don't look it. 17 of which was with a single company, Morgan Stanley, and I moved up the ranks and I was CEO as well. So I had a similar leadership role in a larger organization. And I think there I had some uh, struggles, even though externally I looked successful, I had a lot of struggles in the family and in the workplace, a very political kind of environment, right? A lot of knife wounds on my back. <laughs> but I think it really helps when you're actually working in an environment at a company where you believe in what you're doing. I was done making money for Uncle Morgan. And this is my business as well, but it's a business that I really, really believe in. So when you're in a purposeful mission, it really makes a difference. It really excited to get up in the morning and go to work and do this because this is so important to everybody, even the people that are close to me. And so that, that really helps. The second thing is that I think I'm, I'm much older. I'm turning 50 this year, so I'm a bit wiser. So I do pace myself much better than I did previously. It's really critically important to have a team around you. I know I couldn't have done this alone. There's no way. And we've built a very great leadership team, leaders in the financial space and the technology space to be able to take this forward. My wife and my kids, they're my joy and strength. And 
I have something called faith. So I'm a Christian. So that's critically important for me too. Some people may get a bit fuzzy about that. But if you have certain strong kind of anchoring beliefs that ground you and drive you forward, then that's a real important source of strength. I mean, it doesn't have to be a certain religion, but strong anchors of beliefs and value systems that help people to continue on a journey that is a very difficult journey. Yeah, it sounds like these sort of anchors or, or grounding elements to the journey between having this strong purpose, having this leadership team that shares in the responsibilities and trust and confidence amongst each other, and then family and faith to keep yourself grounded. That's amazing. Sam, I could probably talk for another hour on this. I think we already probably doubled the time that we had. So I really appreciate taking time out and uh, look forward to hearing and talking more in the future on how Endowas grows. Thank you so much, Andrew, for having me here. It's been fun and great. Now comes a segment where we invite founders and experts from McKinsey to provide more context and to draw practical insights. I'm joined by Raphael Bick, a partner at McKinsey and, and leader of Leap by McKinsey in Asia. Hey, Raf. Thanks for joining the show. Look forward to your insights here. Hi, Andrew. Great to be on. So let's get started. Sam talked in the beginning about how they were simply disrupting seemingly just the customer experience in addition to what they're doing on the business model. But what he noticed in the traditional, I would say, wealth management or banking experience is that it's riddled with friction from a manual process perspective, visiting a bank, getting in line, waiting for things. Maybe comment a little bit about what you're seeing out there, just on how incumbents or startups can win just by disrupting the customer experience in the channel itself. I agree with Sam there that the user experience for the customer journey is actually a crucial factor where simplification can improve um, the experience for the customer overall and enhance greater, better proposition. So quite often in financial services, it is a complex buying journey. You need to build trust. And traditionally, it has been very um, sales activity focused. And so the digital journeys as they come along with evolving regulations are starting to get simpler. I would say, though, that it's uh, going a bit beyond purely the user experience to also proposition innovation to really create a compelling differentiation in financial services and onboarding experience. Right? So if I just take one example, we've been working with a large bank who was also launching a new type of wealth management products. and new journeys linked to this. And so when we looked at the onboarding journey there, in order to actually really simplify it, we also needed to change how the products were constructed. For example, the degree of automation at the back end to create a straight through processing in place, the kind of partners that they worked with to provide those products, the kind of policy requirements um, that they needed to meet. And then bringing all of this together essentially allowed to really simplify the user experience and the onboarding journey. So particularly in financial services, where we see a very high degree of regulation in place, simplifying the journey usually also requires working on the product and the backend processes to actually make it really smooth and simple. Yeah, so it's not as simple as just improving the front end, but there's a lot going behind the scenes. Exactly. That's what Sam was getting into. I mean, he's describing that one of the initial innovations with their model is how they allow Singapore citizens to invest their CPF or retirement funds through their products. And they're one of the first or the first company in Singapore to get that uh, regulatory approval for that. But in addition to that, the next question is a little bit more on, on their business model and value proposition is that they are taking away the commission structure that typically exists, I guess, between wealth management banks 
and the different products out there. And they're seemingly just passing on that savings to the consumer. And it's, this is different than what we're hearing out there from, I guess, incumbents, but also these robo-advisor banks that are popping up. And he's very clear that they don't see themselves as just a robo-advisor, but almost like the Netflix of wealth management. What else are you seeing out there on, on sort of the business model innovation? It's the UI UX, it's the economic structure, any other trend you want to highlight there? I think that trend towards more transparent pricing is definitely something that we're seeing as the pricing is coming down um, overall in the market. One of the challenges and one of the reasons why historically you've seen a lot of distribution-focused cost uh, pricing structures is that the consumers have generally not been willing to pay for the actual cost and profitability of doing business, given the high cost of customer acquisition and digital model, um, given the need to run incentives for your, your sales staff to actually go out, talk to customers, given the general model where fund managers have used promotion campaigns and, and push campaigns to get products out in, in certain periods of time, right? So the traditional model has worked quite well for that, uh, since to the customer, it actually appears relatively cheap and that the pricing is kind of much more implicit, right? What they're doing is to make that much more explicit, um, which I think has a benefit in building trust with a consumer. But you need a consumer who values that, um, who values the transparency, who is willing to pay for a service. And I think what this links back now to the proposition point is to them essentially enabling a much cheaper uh, delivery model to, to customers. They actually can bring down the overall cost, right? And so I think that's where then you can potentially find the match between customers for whom this is a compelling proposition uh, and who are willing to pay much more directly than they used to historically. Yeah, that pathway to trust is different, as Sam highlights, from selling something online that's hundred or a few hundred dollars to you know, getting a consumer to transfer a hundred thousand dollars. So that transparency and the pricing model creates trust. Then he talks a lot about their within their marketing strategy, the investment they made early days around content marketing to help educate the market on what's kind of going behind the scenes and but also from a financial literacy perspective. And you and I have, have talked a lot about this uh, in the past too, is this this trend towards content marketing and that, you know, tech companies or startups really need to own the thought leadership in their space beyond this sort of traditional paid media and uh, PR that goes on out there. What else are you seeing here in terms of the capabilities and the, the level of effort required to really make a dent and impact when it comes to content marketing? Content marketing is hugely important. And we actually see now a lot of uh, more traditional organizations also building their own content marketing teams. It's not an very difficult thing to build, but it takes a lot of commitment, more commitment than most folks realize, because you need high quality content, you need it on a regular basis, you need to channel it to the right kind of leads or the right type of customers. And then you need to embed your content in an, an overall customer journey that allows you to engage a potential customer the first time, nurture that interest over time, and then transition into a sales conversations or product purchase or the, the next product to buy. So there's a lot of things that are coming to, together here. And content market is quite crucial in building trust as a brand, as particularly as a new brand uh, with customers. Uh, but it's also critical to understand what resonates um, with customers. So if, if I pick up one example of a client that we helped launch a wealth management insurance business with in a hybrid digital journey, so you acquire customers online, among other channels, and then you transition them 
over multiple engagements, be it content pushes, be it little tools and calculators, be it uh, offline and online conversations with financial planners to a point where the client really understands their needs uh, quite granularly, systematically, because a lot of the data get captured along the way. But also the financial planner is then able to recommend the right product for the client. A lot of that is enabled essentially by content marketing and having the right types of content available from the how-to guides to what to look for in a particular situation in life to explaining products in a much more visualized, interesting way to calculators. All of that plays a crucial role in engaging the customer, learning about them, and then helping uh, to guide and convert them to the right type of product. Yeah, maybe the trend is, you know, without, especially for Endowas, in the absence of an army of salespeople, the content marketing strategy is critical to kind of articulate the value proposition and create that authentic touch point with the customer through different forms of long-form content, short-form content. I was reflecting on, I think a few months ago, the CEO of Coinbase, Brian Armstrong, had some public statement that basically, you know, he believes that every tech startup now is a media company. In other words, you need to own the content in your domain. And with sort of the fragmentation of traditional media, the opportunity is real. And it's not even an opportunity. It's almost a responsibility is to to think of yourself as a media company, because sometimes the traditional media is not going to always get it right, as Brian had kind of highlighted when it comes to, to crypto. So I think this, this is a big trend. And it, content also allows you to be much more nuanced and targeted when engaging with potential leads, right? Wherever you do your marketing or customer acquisition on, um, content allows you to to tap into higher quality leads that you already know a lot more about by the time you're actually trying to talk to them. And that makes your overall sales and conversion journeys a lot more effective. But it is quite a bit of uh, effort to build it um, because in addition to creating the engine that creates the content, you also then need to embed it well into your overall engagement journey, into the, your marketing tools internally and set that up as a learning mechanism. So a very powerful muscle to build, um, but one um, that, that takes a bit of effort as well. Yeah, this is not about just launching a bunch of blog posts on, on how-to articles and top 10 lists, but it's, it's much more integrative. So thanks, Raf. Appreciate your insights. So this is an exciting space. I mean, we could probably have a longer segment just on content marketing and building trust and transparency alone. Thanks, Raf. Thanks, Andrew. You have been listening to The Venture with me, Andrew Roth. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to leave a review and rating on your favorite episode. We will be back with a brand new episode next month.